0: Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork.
1: And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person.
0: Podcast is sponsored by Wine Access. Go to wineaccess.com slash normal to join my wine club and wineaccess.com slash WFMP to see what I'm drinking right now. Listen in the middle of the show for more details. Bruno Corneau is the proprietor and vigneron at Domaine DVO in the heart of the Ribbon Ridge AVA. In Oregon. On the recommendation of many listeners, I added the domain to my list of places to visit when I was in Oregon last year. And to me, it was like an oasis in the desert. Bruno is originally from outside of Bone in Burgundy. His wines were among the best I tasted on my trip. I found a combination of elegance, fruit, earthiness, spiciness in both the Chardonnay and the Pinot that I found, as you have listened to, if you've listened to any of the Oregon podcast, kind of lacking in nearly all the other wines that I tasted. And I was fortunate enough to visit on a day when Bruno was there, and I had a great conversation with him about his philosophy and why his wines showcase the best of Willamette. And we today are so lucky to have Bruno here because he runs Domain Divio with his wife and his friend and partner, Andre Weil, who he's known since he was a chemist in Dijon. But he is also the director of viticulture and winemaking at Northwest Wine, which is a full service growing custom crush winemaking facility. And given his schedule, it took us a while to get this on the books. But I am so glad to have you here, Bruno. Thank you so much in advance for sharing your story. And thanks for being here.
1: Thank you very much, Elizabeth. That's my pleasure to be a part of your podcast. I really enjoy what you're doing.
0: I'm going to first ask you about your background because you grew up in the Haut cote de bone in Meloisé, right? Did I say that right?
1: That is correct. Yes, Meloisé, a small village about a few kilometers north of Bone in what we call the haute coat bone, which is not the fanciest part of the bone area, but good enough to understand a little bit of Pinot Noir and and Chardonnay and uh, the philosophy behind beyond being a Burgundian and trying to make the best wine possible.
0: So what I love is I actually, because I'm such a nerd, I wanted to see exactly where it is. It looks like it's an eight minute drive from Pomar, 11 minutes to Volnay, and 16 minutes to Bone in the car. Is that right? Yeah.
1: yeah. It's really in a circle of great names of places that have been known for centuries for for making great wines and putting this part of the world on a map of amazing wines, definitely.
0: Your great-grandfather planted in the region. It was your grandfather who really developed the vineyard. So can you talk about the Ocote and what it was like for them? Because I think it was a very different time when they were both there and both getting started, right?
1: Yeah, the Côte de Beaune has been known for making great wines uh, since uh, pretty much uh, the, the early days of the uh, uh, medieval time. But then they, they were farmers, and the grapes or the wines were uh, purchased by négociants and all the appreciated by uh, the, the nobles of the of the region. The farmers, either in the villages or in the Côte de Beaune, were farming not only grapes, they were uh, multiple crop farmers. So my grand-grandfather started to grow grapes again after the Phylloxera period as part of of the diversity of of crops you could grow on the farm. So my grand-grandfather had cows and horses and chickens and pigs Mm. and you name it, but they were doing also some uh, vegetables and a little bit of uh, hay uh, for the animals, all kinds of crop growth the property so grapes was a part of it and it was originally like everybody in the village and everybody in the villages around was just for uh, personal consumption so they planted vineyards on some of their lands that was the best exposed for that and they were getting cuttings or planting plants uh, from uh, a nearby nursery or just their neighbors and they were planting what was common at the time that was Pinot noir chardonnay but a lot love Gamay yeah. as well, yeah, Aligoté, yeah. Aligoté, which is another a traditional variety, particularly in the haute Cote de Boven, and a little bit of Pinot Blanc as well. So those grapes variety were planted in my grandfather' vineyard early, late 19th century, and then was taken over by my grandfather that wanted to develop a little bit more of the, I would say, uh, the commercial aspect of it. Especially during the two wars, the demand for alcohol, I would say, was <laughs> Uh, And at this time, people were drinking wine just like we drink water nowadays.
0: It was a very tough time, I think. So I think people needed to anesthetize themselves against... Right. I mean, the war was right on Burgundy's doorstep. Did you ever read the Wine and War book?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yes.
0: It gives you such a great idea of how difficult it was for the vigneron of the time to just try to make it and try to figure out how to survive. One of the really interesting insights that I have figured out that I I don't know if this was the, also the case in Burgundy, but in the 1960s and 70s, when you talk to the families that were in Bordeaux, you know, we think of Burgundy and Bordeaux and Champagne as being these places that were full of wealthy people. And Burgundy is, of course, the most farmer-like of them all. But we think of these wines garnering huge amounts of money. It wasn't necessarily like that until a little bit later. And although the wines of the Ocote now are kind of getting expensive, it was not like that when your grandfather decided to start a co-op, right? So can you talk about that and why that was really necessary?
1: Right. So mid-60s, when my grandfather developed his own brand, he realized that, especially in the output de it was not very easy to do some marketing, especially when you're on your own, and sell your wine when, you, when you're when you from not such a prestigious village, and pushing your wine through either distributors or restaurants up in Paris, that's something you you know how to do. So they had some amount of wine they couldn't sell, just because they didn't have the marketing the, the channels to distribute it. So... Uh, with several uh, of his friends in the haut de they decided to get their efforts together to create something that would push their sales a little bit better, and that's where they created the, the co-op. So it was it was definitely a commercial way to uh, to try to push their wives a little bit better than a real effort for volume or whatnot. It was more very commercial aspects of it. So they created the only one that still exists, of co-op, in burgundy that is based in boven at the time it was called the cellar of the old coat and it has been named like that until about recently but i would say 15 years ago they changed the names to uh the cold crew Cellar or something like that but anyway it was a way to really get together the people with the challenges in selling their their wine and it became really really popular uh from the five guys that started that nowadays there's probably over 700 Oh, my members. gosh.
0: What's your impression of the co-op system, though? I mean, your grandfather started this. So Burgundy does not have a lot of wine. And mostly all of the places that have AOCs have high quality wine because they haven't expanded to places that are not good. But... Do you feel like co-ops get a bad rap?
1: They could, especially in the places where there are a lot of co-ops, a lot of people not doing wine for the sake of putting in ball for quality, but trying to move volumes. It has changed a lot in the last 20 years. Co-ops really focused on quality, on trying to uh, put a lot of uh, procedures in place for quality, getting recognitions on their research for sustainability. A lot of them have, modernize their equipment, going to the best quality equipment and farming the best way possible. A lot of them have uh, certifications on being organic or by being, uh, some parts being biodynamic. So it has changed a lot. So well, that's good. There's no more like relation between being a co-op and bad quality that exists anymore. And the one in, in Bone, there is a lot of producers getting their fruit into the co-op also because they know the wine is going to be treated well with the best specialists that they uh, hired for that. And then the the productions gonna be moved into the channels that they deserve to uh exportation, for example, and facing on their uh, appellation, appellation would say. Like now you co op you can find pretty much all the appellations of Burgundy and wow. uh big bunch of Grand Cru. If you are a farmer that has, and you know it has been like really uh, break into small pieces during the French Revolution. Oh, the
0: Napoleonic Code just wrecked
1: Burgundy. And some growers, they have three rows of this, right. three rows of this, two rows of this, five rows of that. <laughs> so sometimes it's, it's not worth making a cuve out of those three rows because they, they generally have the volume that requires right. for a base. So But them, it makes sense to bring the grape to the co-op and then they're going to gather several producers of the same application and create a volume that is worth a cuvee and make the best of it.
0: I didn't realize that the Grand Cru, I thought the Negotiant bought all of that Grand Cru stuff, but it's interesting that they would also do it in the co-op. And those people are less merchants and more farmers.
1: Right. Yes, exactly. So if you're a farmer and then you... Uh, being a, a member of the co-op gives you more freedom on doing what you want with your grapes. Selling to a negotiation, you don't have much control, neither on the price or the destination or the blend or whatnot. Uh, yeah. like the, the members of the really have power of, of say during the meetings or whatnot on what what the destination of their grapes going to be and what market and and price points and everything.
0: So when you were younger, did you do vineyard work with your... Yeah, yeah. so you were. Yeah. You grew up in the vineyards. And mm-hmm. my second question, I want to hear more about that, but my second question is, many people that I speak to who grew up in vineyards all they think about is working not in a vineyard when they are little and then they just want to get out and they come back to it. Did you have that or did you have the experience that you knew you always wanted to do it?
1: No, I I had to work in the vineyard because that was a family business. (laughs) So I worked in the vineyard a lot when I was a kid. Every opportunity when I was not in school, I was sent uh, in the vineyard and I didn't dislike it. But for me, that was not my career goal. So when I Graduated from the university into biotechnology and biochemistry, I didn't have in mind to take over the vineyard. And we didn't have, I would say, acreage large enough for me to be uh, founding uh, my family. So I didn't think about that as the career for me. But then working in pharmaceutical lab for some time, I was going back to uh, help uh, the family when I had taking some vacation or during harvest systematically, I realized that actually it grew up on me and I, I decided that might be the good path for me. growing the grapes and making wine, not necessarily on my family place, but I wanted to discover more of it. So that's where I came into place that I traveled the world and discovered some other places.
0: Did your family still have land in the Okoche or no?
1: Yeah, and it's all mine now because no. I... I inherited it from my parents, and then I purchased my sister's uh, share from her.
0: So, what do you do with it?
1: So, my cousin is also in a business, and he's farming his share, and he's farming my uh, my own uh, vineyards as well at the same time.
0: So, it's ready for you if you ever decide that you want to
1: yeah, do exactly. some of that.
0: So, you decided to go to school for enology eventually, right?
1: Yeah. And then you also got a
0: master's degree, which is extra. So you're super nerd. And then you traveled the world. Can you talk about all of the places that you traveled, including setting up the vineyard in Tahiti that won awards? And then, you know, as part of that, a lot of the places that you decided to go were new world in fact what all of them right were were new world so yeah. why did you decide to do such a dramatic turn usually the story is i did a harvest in Australia, or I did a harvest in New Zealand, or I did a harvest in Napa. And then I came back and I did one in in Champagne or Bordeaux or wherever. But you did not do that. Now look at where you are. So I'm very curious to know how this (laughs) evolved.
1: So right after my degree, I went to Oregon to have a a discovery of the new world and the techniques and the potential for, for Pinot Noir. And that's when... At this time, I realized how much I loved Oregon. Uh, It was probably the best place on earth to grow cool climate grapes, close enough to what I've been used to in Burgundy, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay particularly. But then I wanted to explore more, so I went to South Africa, discovered another environment, another world actually of of farming with larger fields with different varieties. At the time, I was working in a really, really big uh, company uh, Was it in Stellenbosch? It was in Stellenbosch. So I really that was what I didn't want to do. (laughs) Right, right, good. working in a Jewish facility environment. But then I wanted to travel more. I got an opportunity to, I was really into Chardonnay. And I did my uh, diploma internship in uh, Chateau de Brigny-Morachet. In Brigny-Morachet. Wow, yeah. And that's where I discovered, because we didn't have much Chardonnay at my Farrand's Vineyard, a little bit, but not much. And we were not making uh, high-level wines with it. So uh, I wanted to learn more about it. So I discovered the real Chardonnay world at the uh, Chateau de uh, peligny of And then I wanted to explore a little bit more of that. So I got a job at a place in uh, Macon a negotiation, but he's making wine out of the grapes he purchased from the best vineyards uh, he could find in Burgundy. So I was working with uh, only Premier Cru and Grand Cru there, wow. and all of them. So that, that was really an amazing experience for me. And I worked there for a while until I decided I wanted to explore more while I still at the time. So I went to Napa and worked for Newton Vineyard for a year there. Um, and that must have more. been
0: a sh- big shock of how they make Chardonnay in Napa versus working with Montrachet. It was
1: also Yeah, that was also another way of looking at things. And we're making Cabernet there, and I was responsible for determining what kind of real phenologic variety they had in the vineyard because they had some blocks they planted several decades before, and they were not sure what variety. So I was in charge of remapping the vineyard as well. And then when I came back to France, I've been approached by this former professor of mine at the university, who was the uh, contact in He wanted to develop a vineyard. And uh, I was very intrigued to that. I was, I was still young yeah. and w- wanted to explore more and uh, decided that it was an amazing challenge for me. Uh, certainly. So my wife and I were not married then, but we, we decided to move there and tried to manage this challenge, and we did it. Uh, I tried- What
0: did you grow?
1: That was very challenging. Too.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. Uh,
1: it was not easy to, to find terrain to develop land that we could use, but we found a, an owner on one of the atolls, uh, the atoll of Rangiroa, where we could develop something, and then my first duty was to take the coconut trees down and prep the land a little bit, that is really some.
0: different from Burgundy.
1: And then we, I got in touch with the research center of uh, vine development in Montpellier, and I had them send me some cultivars, different cultivars. So over the three years I worked there, we tried 80 different cultivars uh, on the land. Oh my and, gosh. And because of the environment, the uh, humid and, and hot and warm all the time, tropical, Uh, The vines grow all the time. So the growth was really, really fast. So I could really test a lot of different variants and uh, conditions and and I did a lot of trials. Within the 80 different cultivars, there was uh, one that was showing a good potential that was Carignan. I've been able to do some rosé and red wine and white wine with this, uh, the same grape. It was resistant to the temperature. It was growing steadily. Uh, it was giving me one harvest every six months, so oh my that was gosh. Yeah. Well, some some varieties was was giving me one harvest every three months. That was too much. <laughs> yeah. That was not that was not really easy to manage for me. So, Carignan was also quality wise was giving me a really good wine to work with, which is you yeah, know it's a traditional grape grown yes. in the thousand in Spain in Central California. So uh, it was a variety that I knew how to manage. So I made 10 acres of this and started to make the first commercial wine. And after three years of developing this, my wife and I decided to go back to the U.S., going back into Pinot Noir because I, I was really missing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay that I definitely couldn't grow in the 80s. So the first commercial wine was uh, released over there. So I was pretty happy. It got some medals at the Paris Fair. So I was uh, pretty proud of that. It's amazing. Considering the growing conditions <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and the jack. So we went back to the US and I reconnected with my older friends in the Willamette Valley. And after some time spent in Washington state, I found a a way to reconnect with with Oregon.
0: You did all of these projects that were very unusual. A lot of times when you speak to French producers who have experienced things in the new world, they are really surprised at the technology, how technology is employed. You were in California, you were in Oregon, Tahiti, you probably had, you were choosing which technologies to use. But some people are excited about it. Sometimes... They are completely appalled by some of it. Is there anything in all of these experiences that you can remember yourself saying oh my gosh, we would never do that, or I would never do that, or I definitely want to do that. People have tried very hard to minimize the differences between old world and new world, but there are differences between the philosophies and the technologies also. And, and it's not because the old world is behind, it's because a lot of times people see these technologies and they say, no, I'm not going to do that. Was there anything like that where you were like, mm, nope, not for me, or yes, definitely for me?
1: I'd, I'd never approached this that way, but I understand what you're saying. I'm very open-minded, so for me, uh, everything is good to be taken as long as it fills up your philosophy and the the approach you want to have. In my case, it's uh, the minimal approach is, is the one I'm I, I'm really embracing. That said, being able to monitor some fermentations or whatnot with technology, I don't have to worry as much. Not being interventionist, but being more having an eye on things a little bit closer, without just putting your ear in the barrel and saying, "Well, I heard it bubbles, <laughs> but I'm not sure that." So, I like to be able to know where, and if I have to react, knowing when and how. It's more like having the potential of knowing what's going on, but at the same time, you can take what I loved about the new world is everything's possible and. You're free to do whatever you want, if you want or not, which is more my approach, which is the fact that it's not because it's there that I want to use it. Actually, I want to not use it, but knowing that if I needed to at some point, I could.
0: I feel like I hear that a lot. A lot of French and Italians say that they hope that they never have to use the techniques, but to know that they exist is very helpful. And that's really the idea behind getting a degree is just to know what is possible if you ever hit that and you hope that you never have to use it. That's kind of the thing that I hear over and over and over again. It's kind of interesting. You're saying it also. Why did you decide on Oregon and not? I mean, you could have made Pinot and Chardonnay in Overberg or Walker Bay and in South Africa or Santa Barbara. Why did you and Isabel decide that you were going to do Oregon and you're picking up your life from Tahiti, not from France? But I mean, you're moving to semi rural. Oregon your wife has multiple masters degrees so how did this happen that you decided okay Oregon's the place we're going to set up in this farming community from Tahiti and you didn't have children at the time right
1: well yes exactly so well, that's helpful. that the different reasons to that the first one is because like from as i said like it was the i fell in love with Oregon on the first the first my first day so uh, the people was the first reason I wanted to be here. There was a, a sense of community that mm-hmm. I really couldn't find on the other places I've been to. idea as well, but uh, the growing environment was not for Pinot Noir. So no. in my heart, there was Pinot Noir I wanted to grow and Chardonnay.
0: And you're never making a sparkling over there that's going to be the acidity levels that you're sparkling.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, the community definitely, the way the people really want, It's. There's still the... The feeling of the the pioneers being here, like being the last frontier, like everybody has to help each other to survive, kind of. I mean, yeah. yes, I really love that. Being French, we have always had these dreams of the of the far west, and obviously Oregon, the Oregon Trail, right? The yes. the, the last year, That's that's really what it is. The access to uh, the great national parks. Yeah, uh, beautiful. All these image of America that I really wanted to be part of. Uh, But I've been combining this with being uh, such a great potential for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. I couldn't see anywhere else I could do that, could achieve this. So for us, it's making sense.
0: You did not buy land right away. It's not like you set up the domain right away. You worked for a few other people. You got to get more of a lay of the land. And how long did it take you to figure out that you wanted your own domain, and what were you looking for? And really, the thing that you are very passionate about is Ribbon Ridge. So what about the AVA makes it so special for you? And you really waited for the perfect site, didn't you?
1: Well, there are two things. So, working with some of the vineyards and and all over the Buenavent Valley. I've been giving me the chance to uh, explore and taste and see What for me would be the best opportunity? But then, uh, as much as I can remember, I always had somewhere in my head like a dream of creating my own building, my own uh, business, and my own vineyard, my own brand. There's the will and there is the money behind it. it (laughs) There's what you want to do and that's what you can do. Uh, Then, tasting over and over and looking at those vineyards for me, Ribbon Ridge was really the closest to what Burgundy can offer in terms of soil, even though the uh, acidity of the soil might be quite different. My approach was the clay content in the Ribbon Ridge, which is also a marine sedimentary type of soil, like Yamil I mean, Carlton, is different by the content of clay. The clay level is really high, it's very similar to what I've been uh, exposed to in Burgundy. So for me, that was one of the reasons. The other reason was it was providing the grapes and the wines a tone, a style, a texture, Uh, all the wines I tasted, that was also something I was looking for. The Burgundian, like, very elegant, delicate, silky, tad and spicy at the same time, like floral nose to it, and developing this mushroom character when it ages. That was really what I was looking for. So yeah, we looked, about two years, we looked for the perfect site. And, and we, we found the, the spot that we purchased and decided to call uh, Clogalia in 2014.
0: Why did you call it Clogalia? And why did you call the domain, Domain Divio? It's a good story.
1: So, yeah. So I'm from Bonn and my wife is from Dijon. Dijon is the capital of Burgundy, as we know. So it's uh, it linked uh, to our roots. So I decided to call it Divio, is the early name of the town of Dijon. That was my link to my roots. Domain, of course, because in Burgundy, all the estates are called Domain. So DIVIO is my link to Dijon from the early days. And DIVIO in Latin, or at the time in, in the Gaulish Latin, it means the sacred place. So that was also very sacred in my heart.
0: Yes, it's perfect.
1: Uh, and Gallia Galilea means the Gauls. So I'm a Gaul. I was born in France, which was Gaul at, t- at the time of... Uh, what Divio you exactly? So Gallia means the estate of the goals. <laughs>
0: a lot of your fruit is estate grown, but not all of it is, right?
1: That's correct. So I still buy grapes from uh, the all the different AVAs because I'm I still have in my soul the uh, the Burgundian way of looking at we call that le climat, right? This little patch is very different from the patch next to it just because the elevation is a little bit different or the row Exposure is different, or just the slice of rock in this particular patch makes the wine different. It it what we used to call terroir that has been uh, misused so much that we prefer to call climate now. Yes. In Oregon, I found these different climates as well, so I wanted to explore each of those. And, and Pinot Noir being so sensitive to the place it's growing on, so I really wanted to emphasize this on what these different climates can give to to the same technique of making and So you make them so in the I same have...
0: way with stuff from different climats.
1: Well, most of these grapes I'm buying uh, are from vineyards. I am farming also. Well, so isn't I know that them nice, pretty- right?
0: Well, Your other job, really, in a way, you almost are like a, a co-op or a negociant also working for Northwest Wine. You know, it's it's not a brand necessarily. It's a custom facility, right?
1: Yeah. Somehow, yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: We'll take a step away from the podcast to thank our sponsors this week. Wine A-C-C-E-S-S dot wine, com slash normal is how you will join the wine club with all the selections that I handpick. They're based off of my experience of tasting and looking for things that are really typical and high quality in each of the regions that we're representing. The upcoming shipment will be Italy, which I am in love with and I spend a lot of time in. So I hope that you will consider joining. In addition, you can go to wineaccess.com slash WFNP and see the fantastic wines that I am drinking these days if you need some new ideas of things to explore. Use either of these websites. You're going to get 10% off your first order. Wine Access We're rated the best wine club by New York Times Wirecutter. They're the official partner and wine provider of the Michelin Guide, and they really are the best place to discover limited production wines from around the world. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to WineAccess.com normal, and you're going to join the wine club so that you can get the shipments for the rest of the year. What fantastic wines we have coming up. I'm really excited for this. And you're going to go to WineAccess.com WFMP and shop from their site, Their wines are a collection of some of the greatest hits. Sometimes those wines are available again in new vintages. Sign up to be notified when the vintages are back in for some of these wines. And you can discover new things all the time. Sign up for their email. Check out wineaccess.com slash WFMP. Get 10% off your first order. Do it today. If you want great wines, this is the place to go. Also, don't forget, if you want to help support the podcast and keep us going, what we do requires a lot of time, a lot of effort. And although the podcast is free to you, it's not to us. It takes a lot, a lot of time and equipment and subscriptions and all of those things. And in order to cover those costs, we need Patreon. So P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Wine for Normal P. People is how you can join the community. You get so much back for being part of the community. Great interactions, fun discussions, live events, and so much more. Join patreon.com slash wine for normal people and help keep the podcast alive and get a lot out of this amazing and growing community. Also, don't forget wine for normal people classes. If you want to dork out for two hours live with me and a bunch of other people, it is like the live podcast winefornormalpeople.com slash classes. Check it out today. Now, let's get back to this amazing show with Bruno Corneau from Domain DVO. You do sustainable farming, mostly organic and biodynamic. It's got to be very difficult. It's very hard in Burgundy to acquire those certifications and to do it that way because of the mildew issues. Do you find the same thing in Oregon? I know it's a little drier there. So do you irrigate? How do you work to make biodynamic organic work? And climate change has probably helped a little bit since you've been there.
1: Uh, Yes and no. You are right in the fact that it's important that you, we have to focus on the grapes no, no matter what. So that's the most important thing. Developing a vineyard in a virgin area like Oregon, like there's so much potential that on land that has never been touched with vice before, which is so different than, than what I've been knowing. In in Burgundy, we have, yeah, we have always that vineyard for thousands, thousands of years. Thousands and thousands of years, yes. Right. Developing a new vineyard, that was also an exciting part. Choosing the right rootstock is one thing, uh, the right clone as well, the right exposure. All these things need to be thought of. But then that's, that's a part of being sustainable as well. Finding the right rootstock that going to be resistant to droughts. We don't farm any of the vineyards I'm farming are irrigated, so it's all oh, dry wow. farmed. Yeah. And it's important to realize that if you want your vine to be sustainable for water purposes as well, you want to train them to get their water deep as much as possible, as early as possible. And that's what California is doing now. Vineyards that have been traditionally under irrigation, now they they try to force them down uh, and to limit their irrigation so they they get the water themselves and they're more resistant to drought. That's one way to look at it. But uh, the the reason why also I I mentioned the fact that the land was virgin of vineyard here, that we want to keep it as, say, respectful to the environment as possible because we don't want to disturb the ecosystem. So we we don't want to uh, bring any damage to the land, and we want to respect it as much as possible. And biodynamic is one part of the techniques or programs or philosophy I discovered when actually I was in Tahiti. Being Tahiti showed me that there was no temperature difference that would influence the growth. There was no season that would influence it. There wasn't a difference in light, same amount of light during the day and the night, no matter what the time of the year. The only influence on the growth of vines was the moon. Right. It was really huge. Uh, It really opened my mind in how does this crop we're growing is influenced by the uh, universe, right? How much... The universe has the influence on these uh, little plants, these baby plants. It's it's just mind-blowing. When you're in a northern hemisphere, a cool climate, you don't resent it as much because we have regular seasons and so much change within the season that the plant is regulated by a lot of different things. But when you go at such a neutral environment, the only influence on the plants are the uh, other planets, the universe around it. The tides, tides is, too,
0: I bet, because you're on an island, right?
1: There are no tides. The tide is really minimal as well. It's like, like one foot maybe. Really minimal. Yeah. No other factors that you're you're erasing all the factors of influence you would have in the other parts of the world. And the only factor you're gonna influence your vines with is the moon and the stars. That means at the time you're planting and the action you're going to have on the plant itself are the only factors that are going to change your plant growth, which is really crazy.
0: I really feel like you should write something about this because, you I mean, how many people have that experience where you're actually experiencing something without all of the other factors. Because anyone can talk about biodynamics in California or in France, but you were in a place absent of any of those extra influences that would affect other things, and that's crazy. What a finding. If there was ever an argument for biodynamics, there it is, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to embrace that and and, uh, replicate that year. Even though I know that because there are so many other factors influencing the plants, we still have this universe pushing through as well. So I wanted to embrace that and uh, use it as much as I can. So for me, biodynamic farming was a way to go. So we we do that on uh, a lot of our vineyards, including my own. And we work with this rather successfully, I would say it's hard to understand the real impact of it, even though we know that we're going in the right direction. But the fact that there is not as much pressure on disease here in Oregon than it might be in Burgundy, it's much easier to be organic or or even just sustainable, just because we, we don't want to have all the viruses they would have to fight in, in Burgundy. That's pretty hard when you're uh, strictly Biodynamic.
0: Yes. And this is part of the problem with the purists who say you can only do biodynamics or organics. The problem is that if you want wine out of certain places, you're going to have to be a little flexible. Yeah. Maybe it's the problem with the 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 world right now. We're too absolutist. We're not practical enough. We haven't come to terms with the fact that there's a lot of gray area. And actually, I want to ask you about burgundy and about the gray area that you're now finding yourself in because. When you're in Burgundy, I mean, you grew up with the idea of AOC laws or AOP laws now. So these techniques are etched in stone. The yields, the techniques, the ideas about how the wine should taste, the typicity. So all of that shackles you or it guides you depending on your mentality about it. So my question to you is, you've come here, you're in literally the Wild West, you can do what Ever you want? It sounds like you don't. But is there anything that you do in Oregon that you feel like? Gosh, I really wish they could do this in Burgundy. It would help them. Or do you say I'm leaning on on all of the techniques from the way that I learned about winemaking because that really does make it better?
1: Right. Yeah. The, yeah. Um. Uh, actually, we we have all these liberty of doing whatever we want. We're actually putting ourselves, and it's not me coming here, like already before me, all these pioneers decided they wanted to make the best of what they can do. So limiting themselves, like restricting themselves of doing some crazy things that they could do, but they don't want to, just because it, it was in their mind detrimental to not just the quality, but the truth to the customer. The whole community in Oregon really wants to focus on what you can give the best to the customer, not just the best, whatever you can give them from the vineyard. So some years it's good, some years it's not that good, but that's what nature is giving you. Right. You really want to be true to what you grow and what you deliver. So that means if you have a wine that has some damage because of spoilage or whatever, you're going to try to uh, minimize as much as possible. But at least if it's what it is, well, you have to deliver it that way and not use some crazy technology to move away from it. So that's my approach to it. And that's the approach of a lot of different farmers in the valley.
0: You hear about these stories of some of the larger producers, really famous producers, you know, Velcarin and Mega Purple and reverse osmosis to get the alcohol out. There are places that do. All of it, all of it. But you're saying that's not really something that you see often?
1: Yeah, we don't do that at all. And actually, because we, we've been known, they have all the Willamette Valley in particular, as the little sister of Burgundy or the new brother, depending on you, what uh, genres you, you want to use for that. <laughs> we really focused on uh, the traditional uh, Burgundian techniques. Yep. Using the traditional punch downs or pump overs, extracting the Pinot Noir. The best you can, and not adding any any taint to yep, it. Yeah. Let's say our model is Grand Cru Burgundy. How can we replicate this here naturally without any artifices, any subterfuge? So that's what we're trying to do. Starting by growing the best grapes with quality clones and exposure, and hand pick sorting and no yield. There is no rule on yielding. Right. So I would say 90% of the growers in the Valley are growing their grapes with a yield in mind of what Grand Cru Burgundy would be. Yes, we the top two growers, tons, two, I'm sure. Yeah. Two, two, five tons an acre, which is 35 hectoliters per hectare, which is the level of Grand Cru. Mm-hmm. We could double that, no problem, but we don't want to. We really want to provide the best of what we can grow here. And that, that's another, another reason why I really embrace this place, because people are thinking that way, and that's the way I want to make my wine as well.
0: You love Chardonnay. And I have to say that in my experience with Oregon, I actually think on balance, if you go through most of the wines, Chardonnay is a bit easier to make, and it may be a bit easier to grow. And I think Chardonnay is actually the real star Of Willamette, although Pinot has become the flagship grape. But I feel like it doesn't get enough attention, but it does so well on many different soils and the style of the Oregon Chardonnay. There's more similarity, I think, in the Chardonnay with Burgundy, and yet it seems like nobody is trumpeting that enough. There's not enough fanfare about the excellent Chardonnay in Oregon. I don't know if you feel that way, and I feel like it's got a lot of untapped potential. People, all they do is talk about the Pinot, and frankly, I think it's a lot harder to make really good Pinot. And I'm not sure that every site in Oregon does that. But gosh, the Chardonnay is spectacular from many places. And yet the thing that they want to show you when you go to places is always about the Pinot.
1: Yeah. Well, because it has been traditionally grown here, uh, where situation is not that old. It's a very young industry here, but still like Pinot has been the first one to be recognized. Mm. Top quality uh, grape for the region. If you look at the world, like there is lot love, people who prefers red versus white. That's also another way to look at it. It's the changing,
0: first... though. It's changing now.
1: <laughs> Isn't. and you see the uh, the, the first chardonnay that was planted in the valley here was not the right clones. Oh, so their their growing conditions was not ideal, and uh, it was make chardonnay that was not really interesting. Especially the the acidity was not there. Ooh. So it has been neglected and not looked after for some time until the Dijon Clones was introduced in the mid 90s. And then some people started to make some, but there is so much competition in Chardonnay. That's the most versatile grape. It's grown all over the world. But if you want to make your Chardonnay of your own and being known for it, it's much more difficult because Chardonnay, it's easy to grow everywhere in the world. Yes, uh, Pinot but... not much. True. So if you get Pinot you know, successfully, then you have more chance to hit some niche, and then than then Chardonnay. So that's one of the reason. And then after the new clones was planted, there was no will to really push this because as, as I said, there was so much competition from all over. But then few people decided that there might be a niche also for that. So they started to grow Chardonnay the right way and to make Chardonnay the burgundy style. And, uh, that's why I embraced it as well. And and there are several that are doing that now and it's gonna, it's gonna become the the new thing definitely because there, as you said, there is potential and, and just it's all about acidity, right? Yeah. That's what you said. Yeah. I totally agree with that.
0: Well, and not uh, overdoing say- on the winemaking, which is the biggest, I think one of the biggest problems with Chardonnay is that you've got to get all the growing conditions right, but then you've got to hold yourself back in the cellar. You can do whatever you want, but you have got to stop yourself
1: from doing it. Chardonnay is rather easy to grow. It's easy to make, really easy. But if you if you want to make a really good Chardonnay, then that's way more difficult than Pinot Noir.
0: So people constantly draw, and we're doing it, drawing these comparisons between Willamette and Burgundy. And I don't always see it, especially some of the Chardonnay, yes. I think your Pinot has echoes of it. But when we talk about Willamette Pinot, there are so many styles and microclimates. The cola note, those wines that have the cola note, or the big cherry note. I'm saying like a full 50 to 70% of people who make Pinot out of Oregon are making it in that style. I feel like we need to get a little more refined. The people making it in that style, I don't think are making it in the Burgundian style. I've I've never tasted cola out of a Pinot from Burgundy. I don't know if you have. You've You've had a lot more than I have. But it's not A flavor that I would associate with it. High alcohol is also not a note that I would associate with it. And then there's another style, which I told you about when I was there. I've not been bashful about my criticism of the Pinot, that I feel like some people make it so thin and so light and they say, oh, well, this this is the Chambol's Houstonese style. Well, the thing is that Burgundy, the thing that makes it so special is that it can be light, but it still has enormous gumption behind it. There's still so many layers behind it. It's not so light so that you taste nothing. So I feel that there are few producers, that's why I'm saying when I found you, it was A revelation. There were a couple of others, and I will say most of them are in Ribbon Ridge or Shehalem Mountains, right? Where they're sourcing some from Ribbon Ridge and other parts of really great parts of. I think Shehalem Mountains is probably too big, but it's really amazing. And Ribbon Ridge is an AVA of Shehalem. I don't understand how we can distinguish the different types of styles and get away from this. It's Burgundy. It's at the same latitude as Beaujolais. Gamay could probably be very successful. There are sites that are similar to Burgundy. There are areas that are similar to Burgundy. And there are some wines that are similar. But I have a little bit of a problem, except with you and a few others, kind of drawing these comparisons because it almost is a detriment to Willamette to say that it's Burgundian. Because if you'd say that, and then I'm somebody who knows what Burgundy is, and I go there and somebody says, this is really Burgundian and it has no flavor, it's disappointing. If I taste it and you say this is really Burgundian and it tastes like cherry Coke, that's also a problem. So like, how do we resolve that? You're a leader here. Oh man, I know. I just gave it to you. I'm sorry.
1: I'm sorry to resolve it. I know how to make the wine true to uh, what the grapes. I mean, it's, Again, like it's a question of balance. You, t- you were talking about high alcohol, right? So, definitely, we have a different soil than Burgundy. We have different climate as well. We have the same amount of rain, but not necessarily at the same time. Right. So we have a dry year. We have dry summers. So we may end up. It takes more time for the grapes to reach their flavor maturity. I would say, so than that in Burgundy. So we have to push the sugar a little bit more to get the ripeness that we're looking for, not in sugar, but in, in flavors. So there's a, a fine line and the true for Chardonnay because it's even more obvious between not being ripe enough or being too ripe. It's a really fine line and people realize it with Chardonnay because that's the backbone is definitely the, the acidity. So they, they pay attention to that. They don't pay as much attention on the, on the Pinot Noir. They should. Pinot Noir is also about acidity. We don't have tannins like Cabernet would have. So if we want a wine that's gonna last in, uh, in years, we need the acidity. You need you need enough structure so it's it's full and round and you mentioned color, that's an important factor. But then you so you want to extract those, but you don't want to extract too much. It's uh, it's all about bitterness and not finesse and delicacy. But it's a question of Picking at the right time, balancing the yield, like we talked about, you can have color and you can have some of these great flavors with a higher yield, but you won't have the refinement, the concentration that you're looking for. So, if you really pay attention to all these details, and it's important that farming or organically or biodynamically, have you walked your vineyard more often than if you maybe conventionally, so that I means you you see exactly what's going on. You see if this row has not been thin the same way that the next row. So you may have to do a second pass there because it's uh, it's not the way it should be, or uh, you need more leafing because we want to have the airflow help the grapes like grow better, or to uh, not leaf so you can still be a hot summer. You want the grape to stay in the shade so they retained their color and they retained the acidity particularly so it's, it's it's a real combination between being the farmer and being the winemaker i think the difference i would have myself with the people that were here before me is that i'm coming with this french way of looking at a the at a domain or farm as a having a one person growing the grapes and making the wine. For me, it's really important yes. that it's the same person. You can really look at both sides of the element And if you don't farm well, you don't get good grapes. And if you don't make your wine the way the vines have been grown, that doesn't make sense. So having this symbiotic element between the vine and the grapes uh, and the uh,
0: Yeah, but don't you think site selection in a place with so much diversity of soil—I mean, let's just take for a second, Burgundy, as diverse as it is, we don't have a million soil types. We have a million soil combinations, but we don't have a million soil types. Marl, there's pretty much pure limestone, there's sand, there's some alluvial— and it comes in different combinations. And the thing about Ribbon Ridge, that as far as I understand, is that it's fairly uniform in its soil types, although, of course, there's some variation. But then some of the other appellations that you go into, it would never be possible to make a wine like Burgundy there. So I feel that some of it is a marketing issue, that it could just be Oregon Pinot. But then when they say, well, it's very Burgundian in style, well, there's soil types in Oregon that don't exist in Burgundy. There are sun exposures, there's wind, you know, there's all of these things. So I think it's a, a, it's a bit of a challenge, like where you are, you pick the most Burgundian site because you've got uniformity within reason. You talk to the guys at Beaufort, they'll tell you the same thing where the, this, these areas are um, confined. And so it's, it's a very interesting thing because it's not to say that some people don't love that cola style, but for them to then say that it's Burgundy is a little bit dicey because it's then it becomes marketing and not truth, and that's a little bit tough. I'm not going to say any more about it because I know it puts you in a bad spot, but you are also scouting land in Burgundy, right? Andre has been in the Yon and in Chablis. Are you making wines in Chablis? Yes,
1: we we own grapes in Chablis now, and oh, but, wow. but we don't. Yeah, we don't bake wine in Chablis. So uh, just yes. the vineyards. We're, yeah, it's just a vineyard. And in Vesle, I don't know if you know Vesle yes. It's a little town, yeah. It's also within Burgundy. It has its own appellation since uh, about five years ago. As well, that is quite interesting also. A lot of people that are organically farming or biodynamic farming there, uh, pretty pretty interesting. Uh, but then besides that, like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not planning on, I mean, I'm on my plate right now, so it's, I don't want to add more to it, but uh, to your question about being Burgundian, I mean, obviously having the same grapes, having the same climate, environment somehow, cool climate, definitely, and and using the Burgundian tradition techniques to make wine, that doesn't make, of course, I will never claim my wine is Burgundian, but the style could be uh, flavor. Of course, like as I said from the beginning, Pinot Noir is so sensitive to the place it's growing. So from one type of soil to the other, it's gonna make a completely different wine, right. no doubt. Flavor-wise, definitely. And then the technique of making it would be the same, would be Burgundian. Then it depends uh, on you, your marketing uh, of people in the tasting room would, would approach it or, uh, or try to get some connections uh, about that, yeah, I don't claim my wines are Burgundian, but they are made in a Burgundian style that may, depending on where the grapes are from, uh, they're going to have different distinctive flavors. And that's what I'm looking for, actually. If all my wines were the ones from Duddy Hills and the ones from the Chile Mountain had the same flavors, what the point? Right? No, but, your I, wines, I would...
0: but but there is a difference which is that your wines do resemble old world wines in the acidity, and the balance, in the clones that you're selecting. And it's, like I said, you're an echo of what it is. There's a resemblance. So I think, I mean, that's why I love your wines. I mean, you're so talented. You obviously know exactly what you're doing with these grapes. And so all of the potential that Oregon has, I see in your wines. Like, I see that if they could all be in that vein, I would really be on board with it. The problem is there's a lot of diversity. I know it's a fairly new wine region, but i maybe would have been more excited about some of the wines had i not had in my head that like oh well somebody's saying this is supposed to be like burgundy and, and it's not so that's that's kind of the the rub and you are in a very unique position because you are from burgundy you were trained in burgundy and you understand what the components that go into a wine that should have certain components if you make them in a certain way what should be the end result of that and i'm not sure that everybody feels that the last question I have for you—I've kept you so long. You've been so generous with your time, and you're so busy. What are your hopes for Domain Devio? For yourself? For Oregon? Are you worried about the California investment in Oregon and the change of the culture? Some people selling, and how do you feel about your position there and and going forward?
1: Um, I'm well. The, the the big guys they will come ultimately and they, they've been coming already but they're gonna come more I'm sure of that that like it's you cannot go against that right right we just hope uh they can work uh, collectively with us I mean Kenneth Jackson came over uh, and and farmed some larger vineyard uh for uh, boutique winery that they purchased as well they they've been they've been doing really well with the community they were doing well with uh with the, the style, with the, the wine they were making, like the quality, et cetera. They've been fitting well. Uh, I just hope that- They're the best the of the big, that...
0: there's no doubt. They're the best of the big. Yeah.
1: yeah. With the community and also, I just hope the followers are gonna do the same. That's what I can hope.
0: But for you, I mean, you're gonna keep going and and keep on doing what you're doing. Right. Are you going to grow any like cool climate Syrah? Do you have any weird plans, Gamay, anything like that?
1: So Gamay, um, right now I can source Gamay to make my paste tout I'm making a pas tout Right, yes, it's, I it have it. Yes,
0: delicious. Yes,
1: Plant of Pinot uh, you know, and Gamay. I'm not planning on planting Gamay. I mean, I, first I need to buy some more land, which I <laughs> I don't I, I don't have the money for right now. Expa- uh, I don't and the prices smaller. have gone up.
0: I mean, even since you bought your land, the prices have gone up, right? I mean, it's nuts.
1: That that is true. Yeah, yeah, it's it's moving up quickly, definitely. From the beginning, I said I want to stay small because the the one for me one uh one key of quality is making sure you stay on top of all the aspects of farming and and wine making and, and distribution as well. I been mean, not being in the tasting room, talking to my customer or to you like this, it's important to me to explain what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. I want to stay small because of that. Yep. I mean, if I buy more land, I will continue with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay because I think there's, there's so much tremendous potential for them here. Global warming is what thing, but there's plenty of ways of looking at it before putting Syrah or Tempranillo here. The elevation, the exposure. Uh, there are more and more vineyards uh, planting on the north facing, which is maybe a good uh, a good idea for Chardonnay, for example. The rootstock selection is really really important, and that's going to be the next step. All people, people planting new vineyards, they're really looking into drought resistant rootstocks. Uh, uh, irrigation, we may have to end up uh, uh, working with irrigation. That's not in the pipe for me right now, but that's. Uh, Definitely something to consider. Yep. But not Jira or Don't you. No.
0: <laughs> Well, thank you yeah. so much for coming on the show. You are such a really insightful person. I think of all of the people I've spoken to in Oregon, you have a really amazing perspective on the whole world and how Oregon sort of fits into it, and I really appreciate it. I really, I'm so glad that I found you, and I am so glad that I that you're on the show, and that anytime anybody asks, I always say, the first place you need to go is Domain DVO, and then you can go anywhere else you want, but it is true that you Really do set a big standard for Oregon. I love your wines. I thank you so much for doing what you do. I thank you so much for being on the show. And I'm looking forward to trying your Oak Cote de Bone wines when those come out as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, hello. thank you very much, Elizabeth, for having me on the show. Of course, our wines are not distributed in the U.S., so the only place you can try them is uh, visiting us at the tasting room at Ribbon Ridge. Pretty nice tasty nice room, by the way, with a nice oh, it's environment. G- gorgeous. View is, it's gorgeous. So. It's a, uh, yeah, you can really enjoy that as well. But you can also and, order
0: uh, them. So, I mean, if you can't you can make it out them, there, the you way. can order them. And you can trust me that these wines are just spectacular, really. If you've tasted Oregon wines before and then you taste these wines, you'll be quite surprised at what is here. So, yes, even though they're not distributed, you can still get them. That's the greatest thing about direct-to-consumer now, that people can yeah. go on your site.
1: And we we'll anywhere.
0: There we go. All right, Bruno, thank you so much. You're thank wonderful. You. I can't wait to see you again in person and come visit your gorgeous tasting room. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time.
1: Thank you,